so we want to start here in a timely fashion. Thank you for everyone who's joining us on Zoom as well. Uh, as always, uh, once folks come in and get settled, we'll open up with a word of prayer. As always, we just want to invite the Lord to be present here. We want to invite the Lord to be the one who is speaking to us. It's His Word. He loves to speak to us. He loves to reveal Himself to us. He loves for us to dive into His Word, to try to know Him better, to understand Him better. So we're really just trusting His character, trusting who He is as we enter into this time tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank You so much for just how amazingly good You are to us and in so many different ways. And we thank you, Father, that you are a God who has made yourself known to us. Lord, you could have remained hidden. You could have remained far beyond our ability to understand you, to come into relationship with you. But because you are so compassionate, because you are so merciful, you have revealed yourself to us. And Father, the most incredible declaration of who you are is your son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, you said that if we have seen you, we have seen your Father. And by faith, Lord Jesus, we have seen you. And by the accounts in Scripture that tell us who you are and what you are like and what you accomplished when you came into the world. And so we thank you, Jesus, that because we have seen you, we have seen your Father as well. We thank you for another opportunity, Lord, um, to be together as your people and to study your word together. And tonight, Lord, particularly as we continue to talk about the millennium, we just ask, Lord, that you would give us your wisdom. Father, you are, are well aware of how challenging this subject is for us, and you are well aware of the just broad spectrum of understanding and differences in interpretation when it comes to the concept of the millennium. And Father, we know that ultimately, it is your intention to continue to allow us as your church to wrestle through this theme, to wrestle through what it means, to wrestle through the verses that speak of it, and try to connect those verses to other passages of Scripture. Because, Lord, we know you are sovereign, and we know you are sovereign over your church, and we know, Lord God, you reveal in accordance with your perfect will. So, Father, we just ask that we would come tonight with real humility, that you would remind us, Lord, that we don't have everything all figured out. We don't have the answer to every question. But that even in that, we can completely trust you, the one who sees everything, the one who knows everything. So, Lord, we just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit. We ask that your Spirit would be teaching us that he would be the voice that we hear. He loves to remind us of what Jesus taught. He loves to explain the things that Jesus taught. And so we're just trusting that he will be present. So thank you again for this time. And Lord Jesus, above all else, may you be honored in everything that we do and say. And Jesus, it is in your name and your name alone that we pray these things. Amen. 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 Well, again, thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, it's been a while. We actually met the first Wednesday in March, and then Seema and I took off. We had a wonderful trip. Thank you for all of you who prayed. Uh, we did get the van there, and Danny Moeller sent us a video yesterday of the van safely arriving at the ranch. So that was a great, great bit of uh, good news to see. But when we met at the beginning of March, we started to talk about the millennium. And even as I was praying, just by way of reminder, the millennium 
is a relatively rarely used word. In fact, the only place that it's found in scripture is in these six verses and then in the next verse that immediately opens the next section after that, verse 7. So this is the only place in scripture that explicitly talks about this particular thousand years using that designation for it. So it's a relatively brief theme in scripture, but it is incredibly complicated in terms of what the believing church has done in trying to understand it. Remember we were saying there are so many things that the believing church is in agreement on. And the most essential and core of doctrines, there is no disagreement in the believing church. You know, the inspiration and inerrancy of the word, the, the deity of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his return to the Father, his return a second time. You know, and on and on and on the list goes. And so sometimes we may get a little discouraged or we may get a little disheartened when we tackle a theme and we see, wow, believers have a lot of different ways of understanding this and there's a lot of disagreement and sometimes it can get a little contentious Sometimes it can get a little heated and believers can kind of start to let discussion become argument. So we are trying very, very hard as we tackle the issue of the millennium to avoid that. And again, remember, it is not my goal to try to convert any of you to the understanding of the millennium that I have, although obviously it is the one that I think makes the most sense because if I didn't, I would adopt another stance. And so I'm certainly going to share with you why I think the view that I take is the one that makes the most sense. But at the end of the day, if you search the scriptures for yourself and you evaluate the passages of scripture and feel like you're going to come up with a different conclusion, you know, that's totally fine. That's totally fine. But remember, as we talk about the millennium, the word millennium simply means a thousand years. And in the book of Revelation, relatively near the end of the book of Revelation, John talks about a specific thousand-year period. And so what I want to do is I just want to read again for us Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, just so we're at least a little bit familiar with the uh, most significant passage of Scripture that we're going to be dealing with tonight. So Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. It says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life as far as the end of the thousand years. This is the first resurrection. 
Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And then just picking up verse 7 as well, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. So then including that verse 7, which is actually the intro to the next section, these are the only verses in Scripture, as I said a moment ago, that specifically mention this particular thousand years. What we talked about last week, or when we met last time, is that there are basically three major understandings of the millennium within the believing church. And one of the sheets that you have in front of you is this diagram that says the millennium, three different approaches. What I actually am going to do is I will not have room to put all three up at once, but what I'm going to do is kind of just sort of mirror what you have in front of you on the board and kind of break down the lines that you see there. So each one of these is a very, very simple timeline. And I apologize for the simplicity of my graphics, but it's the, the meaning behind it more than the graphic itself. I was really hoping Carl would have produced something far more flashy and eye-catching by this point. Did you do that, Carl? I didn't. I just figured you'd know it intuitively. Okay, so the first position that we're going to look at is what is referred to as pre-millennial. And again, pre means before. So what they are saying is that the return of Jesus Christ comes before the millennium. So the second view, the post-millennial. Post meaning after. So what post-millennials say is that the return of Jesus Christ comes after the millennium. Okay, Because the terminology can get a little complex. And I'll be honest with you, if after tonight or if we talk a little bit more about the millennium when we meet again, you don't use these words, that's totally fine. But just so that you're a little bit more aware of the terminology that the believing church has been using to try to describe these different positions, it's helpful to know. So a lot of the evangelical church in America right now is pre-millennial. So what they believe is that the return of Jesus Christ occurs before the thousand years described in Revelation 20. So on the sheet that you have in front of you, you see that all three positions have a line and then an X, but ac or, uh, that plus sign, but that's to represent the cross or the first coming of Christ. Obviously, all three positions believe that Jesus Christ came. So you can see that all three positions have that little plus sign. We'll make it more of a cross. So that line designates the first coming of Christ. Then what you see at some point is kind of what's supposed to be a lightning bolt. I'll make it a little bit more broad in this. But that lightning bolt is the second coming of Christ. So you see here in the pre-mill position, there's a couple of dashed lines that we'll talk about in a second. And then there's sort of that symbol that's supposed to be the lightning bolt. So that is indicating the second coming of Christ. Now, because they are pre-mill, 
remember, what they believe is that the second coming of Christ is before the millennium. So they believe that the second coming of Christ begins the millennium. So this is the start of the millennium, or the thousand years. And then that other designation that you have on the sheet is just to indicate that, obviously, they believe there is a point where the thousand years comes to an end. And that's that line that's indicated there. So that's just what we'll call the end of the millennium. And then at the other side of the end of the millennium, that is eternity. So remember we said the challenge of the millennium is whether or not there is a silver age, or maybe what we would call a third age. Okay? So what do we mean by that? Well, in describing the millennium as a silver age, what we are saying is that some believe that the millennium is better than the current age, but it's not as good as eternity. So if eternity is the golden age, the perfect age, and now obviously is filled with all sorts of sins and problems and difficulties, the millennium, some people believe it as, or, or see it as a silver age, something that is better. And again, remember, if you look at the top of the sheet that is the other one that we gave you that says the millennium or the challenge of the silver age, those Old Testament passages, Isaiah 65, Ezekiel, the last nine chapters, and Zechariah 14, remember some would argue that that is the prophets describing an age that is better than right now, but not perfect, not eternity, not the completion of God's work. So they believe there is sort of this in-between age. That's why they call it the Silver Age, because eternity they would describe as the Golden Age. The third age is because you may remember when we were doing our introduction into eschatology, Jesus and other New Testament authors frequently talked about the present age and the coming age. Quite a few times the New Testament puts a contrast between the present age and the coming age. So the question of the millennium is, is there a third age? Is there the present age and the coming age, is there something in between? Again, one of the reasons why I would question this a little bit is just of the frequency that Jesus and other New Testament authors talk about the present age and the coming age. And they do not ever explicitly mention a third age. But folks who are pre-mills would argue that this is sort of a, a third age, an in-between age, something that's better than what we are experiencing right now, but something that is not as good as eternity. So they believe that Jesus Christ comes a second time, and that is the beginning of the thousand years. And most pre-mills would take this as a pretty literal thousand years. A lot of pre-mills tend to take the book of Revelation fairly literally, would tend to take Old Testament prophecy 
fairly literally. At, at, at times, they would look for a metaphorical or figurative language in scripture, but most of the time, they would be looking to try to understand every biblical passage literally, if at all possible. That's kind of like their default way of interpreting scripture. So they would believe that this is a literal thousand years, okay? Now, the two lines that you see in front of the second coming shows a little bit of the difference in premillennials. Because remember, we talked at length about the nature of the second coming of Christ. And we argued that it seems that the New Testament indicates that the return of Jesus Christ is going to be a single event. But there are a lot of folks who believe that it is a twofold event. There are a lot of folks who believe there is a rapture before the second coming. So these two lines indicate possible times for the rapture. So what we were doing in the past is just sort of indicating the rapture as Jesus coming part way down, believers on planet Earth meeting him in the air, and then Jesus and believers going back into heaven. That's what is referred to by pre-mills as the rapture. It's not the full second coming of Christ. It's a partial coming of Christ that precedes his second coming. So he comes partway down. All believers alive on the planet at that time are taken up to meet him in the air. And then he and those believers go back into heaven. Now some pre-mills believe this occurs seven years before the return of Jesus Christ. A much smaller portion believe that occurs three and a half years before the return of Jesus Christ. So these are two different distinctions within the pre-mill camp. There are actually some pre-mills who believe that the rapture is not a separate event from the second coming. So you can see already how this starts to become an incredibly complex theme. And again, if you don't grasp all of the details or if you can't repeat it tomorrow, that's totally fine. Because part of what we're doing in studying the millennium is just appreciating that there are certain topics that scripture speaks about where there is not agreement within the believing church. And the millennium is maybe one of the, the, the best examples of that. So even within the three major camps, there is tremendous diversity within those three groups themselves. So basically, a primo believes Jesus Christ came the first time. Most believe that sometime before his second coming, he will come partway rapture all believers, and return to heaven. Then either seven years or three and a half years, then he comes all the way and establishes the millennial reign. And they believe that that will last for a thousand years. And then at the end of the thousand years, that will be eternity, perfection. Okay? And, you know, if you run into it, you know, these are 
pre-trib premillennialists, these are mid-trib premillennialists, and these are post-trib premillennialists. So that's how complicated the nomenclature gets. But there are some premillennialists who actually believe that there is not a distinct rapture from the second coming. So they actually believe that the return of Jesus Christ is a single event, not a twofold event. Most American evangelicals believe the rapture occurs seven years before the second coming. They believe the return of Jesus Christ is a twofold event. But again, on this sheet here, under premillennialists, you see the first category is historical premillennialists. They are the ones that believe the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. The dispensational premillennialists are the ones that believe the rapture is a distinct event from the return of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the strongest biblical arguments for this we talked about last time because the premills tend to read the book of Revelation in kind of a straight line. They believe that the events beginning in chapter uh, 6 going through the end of the book are occurring and being told to us in chronological order. So because Revelation 19 has an unmistakably clear description of the return of Jesus Christ, they say that, well, Revelation 20, the millennium, comes after Revelation 19, the return of Jesus Christ, so the millennium has to occur after the return of Jesus Christ. Another really strong emphasis of pre-mills that rightly emphasizes other aspects of Scripture is that to deal with the problem of evil, the only solution is the return of Jesus Christ. To deal with the problem of evil in the world, the only possible solution to that is the return of Jesus Christ. Nothing less than his second coming is going to deal with evil in this world. Premills also rightly emphasize the increase of evil in this age. They say that as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we are going to see an increase in evil. And that is going to continue until the return of Jesus Christ when he begins to deal with evil, okay? So let me just ask if there's any questions about the pre-mill position. Yeah, Deborah, please, just grab the microphone so the folks on Zoom can hear you as well. It's just a quick clarifying question. So the pre-trib, uh, pre-millennial, I need to look at my page. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's okay. right. Yeah, the pre-trib, Premillennialists believe in the seven years, the mid-trib believe in the three and a half years, and then the post-trib believe in no rapture at all. Is that correct? So this is just talking about when they believe the rapture occurs. Mm -hmm. Yes. As far as I understand, most premills believe in a seven-year tribulation. The only question is, at what point in that tribulation does the rapture occur? So these folks believe that the rapture occurs and that begins the tribulation. These folks believe that the tribulation begins and three and a half years into the tribulation, then the rapture occurs. And some of the historical pre-mills, I don't think they would all say that the tribulation has to be a literal seven years leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. 
But the commonality that they have is that they all believe the second coming is what establishes the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. Okay? And I'll be honest with you, I do start to get some of the nuances of these different positions confused. Mm -hmm. So if you start to as well, that's totally fine. And you may ask, or someone else may ask some questions tonight, and I may pause or may not be able to answer it. Because we haven't even gotten into all of the permutations of resurrection and new bodies that the pre-mills have to kind of try to navigate. To me, one of the major problems that the pre-mills have, let's just deal with the pre-mills in their simplest, that don't believe in the rapture as a distinct event. They just believe that Jesus Christ comes again and that he establishes the thousand years. Well, all the believers that have died in Christ, where are they right now? They're in the presence of the Lord. When Jesus Christ comes a second time, who comes with him? All of the believers who have died in Christ. So what the pre-mills argue is that when Jesus Christ comes a second time, absolutely he brings with him every believer who has died in Christ. And at that moment, as we saw in Thessalonians, they receive their resurrection bodies. But now, where do they live? They live on earth in the millennium. But what is happening on earth during the millennium? It's much better than now, but if you take literally Isaiah, people are still dying. And if you take Revelation 20, the next section, at the end of the millennium, there's an incredible assault by Satan and all of his cohorts against the people of God. So to me, one of the biggest challenges that pre-mills face is that everyone who has died in Christ, who is now in the presence of Christ, enjoying bliss and glory in the presence of Christ, if the pre-mill position is right, they come back to earth with Jesus, they receive their resurrection bodies, but then for a thousand years they actually have to live in an earth that's better than now, but still has death, still has a measure of suffering, still has a measure of imperfection, and then ultimately has a massive rebellion of Satan at the end. Now, to me, I just don't see a whisper of that anywhere else in Scripture. Once you die and go to be with Christ, I mean, that, that's it, other than the resurrection of your body. So to have a period of time after you have been in the perfect presence of Christ, after you now have received your resurrection body, to have a thousand years where you are on an earth where people are living in, in bodies that are not resurrected are still dying, and people are still turning away from the Lord, and ultimately all of those people at the end who turn away from the Lord align themselves with Satan and attack you as believers, that to me is a really big problem that pre-mills have to try to solve. Because again, this, this is what happens. Remember, six verses and, and seven just as an intro. That's all that the New Testament and the Old Testament ever say explicitly about this thousand years. But look at what you do with this, how much it, it influences how you read other massive portions of Scripture. 
I mean, even just in the brief discussion that we've had so far, you start to see how much it starts to trickle into other things. So that, to me, is the biggest problem of historical premillennialists. Because remember, historical premillennialists, they believe in the second coming of Christ as a single event, but they absolutely believe everything that we said about the return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the body. The passages that we read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the passages that we read from 1 Corinthians 15. That when Jesus Christ comes again, he brings with him all those who have died in him, have died in Christ, who have been in his presence. And at that moment, they receive their resurrection body. And all those believers who are alive on earth, they are taken up to meet him in the air and they are changed. They are given their resurrection bodies. So what the primos are asking us to accept is that now for a thousand years, you have some people living on earth in their resurrection bodies that they are going to live in for all eternity. And you have other people living on earth who are in their corruptible bodies. And some of them are going to die, and some of them are going to believe in Jesus, but others are going to not believe in Jesus. And ultimately, at the end, all those who do not believe in Jesus are going to mount a a massive rebellion with Satan against the people of God. So that, to me, is a big challenge the pre-mills have to face. Okay? But again, let me pause here to see if there's any questions about this so far. So what... Um, oh, yeah, please. Um, so with... Hmm. Hmm. So... Did the premillennialists believe that anyone will be saved during this period, or it's all like that's all done with during the thousand year millennium? No, they absolutely believe that for those who sort of go from this into the millennium, yes, there is an opportunity for them and their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren either to accept Christ or to reject Christ. Okay. Absolutely. Right. And again, that, that's another piece of this that to me is a little challenging because, again, I think the most straightforward reading of the New Testament says that once Jesus Christ comes, there, there's no opportunity after that to accept him. But the pre-mills, again, are saying that that absolutely is part of what happens in the millennial kingdom, is that there is an opportunity for those who are living in mortal bodies to accept him at that time. And then obviously an opportunity to reject him as well. So that's the historical premillennialists. So the second category of premillennialists, again on that sheet, the millennium or the challenge of the Silver Age, B says dispensational. So remember, dispensational premillennialists, they uh, believe in a rapture before the second coming. And what they believe is that all of the believers are taken up with the Lord in the rapture and are taken up to heaven. And what they believe is that when Jesus Christ comes a second time, they don't come with him. See, that's how they solve this problem. So everyone who has a resurrection body during the millennium, they are hanging out in heaven. So they don't have to come back down to an earth that still has the threat of death, that still has the threat of a curse, 
that ultimately has a massive rebellion at the end of it. Everyone who has received their resurrection body at the rapture, they're hanging out in heaven. They don't have to come back down to earth to deal with all of that. And you can see how that makes a bit more sense. But then the challenge that I think they start to face is the dispensational premillennialists, they take Jewish believers and they create an entire different salvation purpose for them as opposed to Gentile believers. They believe that primarily it is the Gentile church that's in heaven during the millennium. And they pretty much have a separate salvation purpose. And it's believing Israel that now is living on planet Earth during the millennium. What they actually believe is that when Jesus Christ came a first time, he offered Israel the kingdom. And for the most part, they rejected it. And because Israel rejected her king, and because Israel rejected her kingdom, this, this church age kind of came, became a parenthesis. So the entire New Testament age for dispensational premillennialists is kind of a parenthesis. This is only happening because Israel rejected the kingdom when Jesus Christ came the first time. So the rapture sort of ends the parenthesis of the church age. And now God can finally get to fulfilling all of his purposes for Israel. And that's why, again, when they read Old Testament prophecy, all the prophecies about Israel that have to do with promised land and life in the land and abundance in the land, they do not believe that that applies to the church. They believe that that is going to be literally fulfilled by natural Israel during the millennium. So all of those Old Testament prophecies that we believe are talking to the people of God, both Old Testament believing Israel and New Testament believers, whether Jew or Gentile, the strict dispensational premillennialists say no. If Isaiah is making a promise to Jews about the promised land, that does not apply to Gentile believers. That only applies to Israel, Jewish believers that will fulfill and walk out those promises during the millennium. The Gentile church has been raptured and is hanging out in heaven with Jesus at that point. So really, they just kind of believe this whole church age is a parenthesis. The salvation of the majority of the Gentile believers is sort of a parenthesis. And this is sort of like all these Old Testament promises, they're kind of put on pause during the church age. And then once Jesus establishes the millennium, now all of the Old Testament promises are starting to be fulfilled. If you have a dispensational study Bible, I actually do. I don't know if this is a Ryrie study Bible or a Schofield study Bible, but just Note after note after note after note in Old Testament prophecies say this is the millennium, this is the millennium, this is the millennium. Because what they're saying is that those promises made by the Old Testament prophets that were prophesying to Israel will not be fulfilled by the Gentile church or will not be fulfilled by a Jewish Gentile church. They will only be fulfilled by natural Israel on planet Earth during the thousand years. So again, you can see how, okay, six verses in Revelation, they're causing a lot of problems. I mean, they're causing a lot of problems. And, and not in a bad way, because God, I mean, you guys know me well enough to know, I, God's word is perfect. He's given to it 
us in a perfect way. It's, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's without flaw. But I mean, obviously, just as we try to make sense of these six verses, it's creating a lot of problems for us. This isn't God's fault. I mean, I think you know how I'm saying that. It's creating a lot of trouble. It's creating a lot of trouble. And so, to me, this is what I was for years. But eventually, these problems just became too great for me to be able to reconcile with my reading of Scripture. I mean, when I'm reading Isaiah, and Isaiah is making a prophecy to Old Testament Israel about the glories that are coming, I don't think, oh, wow, too bad that's not for me. I wish I was natural Israel. I think, no, this is a prophecy to the people of God. And it is going to be fulfilled by the entirety of the people of God. And you know, Paul bends over backwards, particularly in Ephesians, to talk about how the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been torn down. You know, in Christ there is neither slave nor free, male nor female, Jew nor Greek. That's Galatians. And so just having this incredibly split and separate, twofold salvation purpose of God with the Gentile church experiencing one form of salvation and the natural Israel fulfilling another, to me that just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Okay? So I think the pre-mill position certainly has some things that commend it. The increase in evil until the return of Jesus Christ. The necessity of the return of Jesus Christ to solve the problem of evil. But even there it hasn't really solved the problem because the second coming of Christ still has an incredibly intense rebellion on the other side of it. So to me, the second coming of Christ is so anticlimactic because, yeah, some great things happen, but we're still a thousand years away from the ultimate end of everything that's wrong with this rebellious, sinful creation. And to me, again, as I read the New Testament, I just get the sense that the New Testament authors are seeing that when Jesus Christ comes again, that's it. That, that's it. That's, that's eternity. That's the end of everything that's wrong with this age. That's the end of everything that's wrong with this life. And perfection begins. That's, that's the way I understand the New Testament. So, but that's a pretty simple pre-mill. And probably if there was a pre-mill here, he would be shredding me and you know, adding a lot more to it. This is definitely the hardest for me to track with. So you free to ask me some questions. I may just have to say I'm not sure. I've tried to look over so I could answer general questions, but I'll pause here just to see if there's any comments or questions about this before we get into breaking down the post mill position a little bit. So so any comments hey. or questions about the pre mill? Dave, I have a question. Yeah, it's please. Laura. Um, what I'm wondering is uh, when you talked about the um, uh, the people having um, the new bodies and they're coming back to earth. I mean, how are they impacted by, say, like the um, the time where Christians are 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 beat up or you know killed or whatever? I mean, are their with their bodies based on this theory uh, be affected again? So what, Does that make sense? Yeah, so what the pre-mills believe is that the unbelieving nations are sort of put onto the margins during the thousand years. So in other words, Jesus is reigning on earth. That's, that's what they believe. He's come to earth, 
and he is reigning on earth. So he has set up a reign on planet earth that is, is way better than this. And so even though they acknowledge that there are still unbelievers alive on the earth, and even though they yeah. acknowledge that there still is the possibility of death and, and of rejecting the Lord, in a way that probably we could not fully understand because this age is so fraught with evil, the millennium and the coming of Christ has sort of just pushed that to the edge. So like one of the, one of the things I read is basically the sinful nations are put in check for the thousand years. So they're not gone, but they're not winning the day. They're not prevailing. Okay. Christ and his followers are. So, yeah, so those believers that have come with him that have received the resurrection bodies, I mean, they're not going to die again. So they're living the full thousand years in the millennium. And so, absolutely, evil is still present, but it's put at bay. Because remember, one of the things that Revelation says is that during the millennium, Satan is bound. Remember, that's right. the emphasis of Revelation 21 to 3. So there is a curtailing of evil without a destruction of evil. It is, okay. it is significantly squashed without being completely destroyed. That's probably, hopefully, a fair way to understand the millennium from a pre-mill perspective. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. Other, other comments or questions about this? Yes, and the Amil is the easiest yet. So, yeah, I mean, I love our dispensational pre-mill brothers and sisters. I mean, they love Jesus, and they love his word, and they pour over these passages of scripture. I mean, I was a huge Hal Lindsey fan. Some of you are familiar with Hal Lindsey. He was big in the 70s and the 80s. He's a dyed-in-the-wool, you know, dispensational premillennialist. And he's written some, you know, pretty intense, complicated books. And, and, and I love him. I love him because he's a brother in Christ, and he loves Jesus, and he loves the Word of God. But I certainly don't believe that this is the best way to understand Revelation 21 to 6. And I certainly am convinced it's one of the most complex ways of understanding Revelation 21 to 6. Now, again, just because something's complex doesn't mean it's wrong. But I believe that this almost says that if you are not a theological expert, you're not really going to get this. And I just, I mean, I love doing a deep dive into Scripture. I love tearing apart verses and words and, and passages. But I also am convinced that God gave the scriptures to the entire body of Christ. And there aren't certain passages of scripture that are reserved for the theologically elite. You know, if you look at the beginning of the book of Revelation, what, what does Jesus say about the book of Revelation, the most, you know, challenging book for the modern church? It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And, and, and what is the name of the book? The name of the book is The Revelation. It's a revealing. It's not a hiding. It's not a concealing. It's not, let's make truth as confusing as possible. Let's make truth as unattainable as possible. It's a revealing. It's supposed to add to our understanding of Jesus. It's supposed to add to our understanding of how the kingdom of God works itself out in this life and ultimately prevails in the end. That's what the whole premise of the book is. So any 
any camp, as, 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 as well-meaning as they may be, that ultimately undermines that, to me, has, has gone off the rails a little bit. Because the whole purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal Jesus Christ. It's to make him known, not to the theologically elite, not to seminarians. To who? His servants. That's all of us. That's all of us. Literate, illiterate. All the breadth of the servants of Jesus Christ, all of us are to be able to read the book of Revelation and have a better understanding of who Jesus is. So even though I, I don't just shy away from complexity because it's complex, I do think, Andrew, you know, there is a point in your comment, which is if this makes understanding the, understanding the millennium unavailable to 95% of the church, then I think we've missed the point. I, I, I think. So, but again, not looking to pick a fight, and if you're a, a, a pre-trib, pre-mill, I'm not looking to pick a fight with you. I just, I think there's a much better way to read Scripture. And there's a much better way to read Revelation 21 to 6 that stands in agreement with, I believe, our clear teachings of the New Testament in, in multiple other places. So, but yeah, Alex, a comment? Or a question, either? So it might be a little irrelevant, and I might be asking the wrong person, but um, how do premillennialists uh, reconcile some of the comments, statements that Jesus makes about his coming again, firstly, in that it seems to say the hour it comes, no one knows, not even, only the Father knows, but it's not plural. And then there's other statements, again, with the enormity of the lightning and stuff. And there's other statements that I think, even though I don't know off the top of my head, that make it seem like when it comes, it does have a bit of an ultimate sense to it. And I say this without knowing an ultimate and unique sense. I say this, obviously, without knowing the language that it's originally written in. But well, let me, and I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to accurately represent this position without actually believing it myself. What they would say is that, I don't know how the mid-tribs handle that, so that I'm just going to have to say I'm not sure. But the pre-trib rapture folks would say this coming of Christ is unknowable. This coming of Christ is what is no man knows the day or the hour. Because other than just the entirety of the church age that precedes it, there's not a clear marker that precedes it. So they would say that when Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour, he's not talking about this. He is talking about this. So what they would actually argue is that the first coming of Christ, the rapture, sort of the pre-second coming, coming of Christ, is the unknowable. In terms of the finality, the primos actually believe that Matthew 25, the parable that Jesus tells about all of humanity before him as sheep and goats, and everyone who reached out to him by reaching out to you know, his weak brothers are the sheep. They enter into the presence of the Lord and the goats. They actually believe Matthew 25 takes place here before the millennium. And they actually believe the sheep are the people who initially populate the millennium not in resurrection bodies. Remember, the resurrection bodies are the folks who were already in heaven that came with Jesus. So they believe that the folks who can still die in the millennium and still maybe reject Jesus later or have children and grandchildren reject Jesus, 
they believe those are the sheep of Matthew 25. So they actually believe that there is a piece of that sense of final judgment associated with the second coming of Christ that actually occurs there. They believe that Matthew 25 takes place here, not here. But again, that to me gets really tricky because that's almost like saying there's two final judgments. Because I read Matthew 25 and I get the sense that's it. That's, that's final judgment. That's not something that's going to precede the thousand years. But that's what they do with that. Because, again, I think they're sensing that a lot of the New Testament has a sense of finality when talking about the second coming. So that's kind of how they work around it. So the unknown day or hour of Jesus' return is the rapture, which is secret. This is the one, that's why I make it the lightning bolt, this is the one that's unmissable. But the initial rapture, remain. All the unbelieving world is just left kind of wondering, where did everyone go? So this is not Jesus coming like lightning as far as east is from the west he's seen. This is secret. It's just all of a sudden, all of us who are true believers wouldn't be there anymore. And that's what that movie left behind, you know, really graphically captured. I think, like, some guys are on a plane and the pilots are both believers, right? And all of a sudden, you know, the pilots are gone and how's the plane going to land? I mean, it makes for an entertaining movie, but I, I, I don't think that's the way it's going to work. So, but, you know, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're taking from Matthew 24, you know, two are grinding at the mill, one is taken, one is left. Um, that, that's, that, that's where they're getting that from. But does that kind of help answer a couple of the issues you raised? And again, not being a pre-mill and not having read, you know, a thousand pages of pre-mill leading up to this, just reading summaries of it, that's probably the best answer I can give. Um, but any other comments or questions about the pre-mill before we jump to the, the post-mill? And as, and as Andrew was hoping, the post mill is a little bit easier to understand. So let me just erase a lot of this. So remember, post mill. Why is it called post mill? Because they believe the return of Jesus Christ comes at the end of the millennium. So what post-mills believe is that as we work our way through the New Testament age, as we work our way through the church age, we'll call it that because that's what we called it a second ago, that things are getting better. The gospel is spreading. More people are getting saved. The kingdom of God is growing. You know, again, ample, ample passages of scripture that reinforce these principles. And so what they believe is that at some point the church actually ushers in the millennium. So on the diagram that two dash line between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, that's the beginning of the millennium. Now some post-mills believe that it will be a literal thousand years, but a lot of post-mills do not. A lot of post-mills are happy to believe that numbers in Revelation are symbolic and not literal. And so they believe at some point, because of the unstoppable growth of the kingdom, because of the unstoppable influence of the church in the world in which she is living, the millennium is inaugurated by the church. And then at the end of the millennium, Jesus Christ comes again. 
And so they would believe the return of Jesus Christ is a single event. They would believe now that he comes not only for believers that are living on planet Earth, but comes with believers that are without resurrection bodies in heaven, that they all will receive resurrection bodies. And then you see this whole middle age after the return of Jesus Christ is gone. So on the other side of the return of Jesus Christ is eternity. So a lot easier. And again, some of the problems that we were having with pre-mill. You know, there's an incredible finality to the return of Jesus Christ. You know, he comes and it's final judgment. He comes, there's no second chance for salvation afterwards. He comes and inaugurates eternity. He brings with him new heavens and new earth. So there's a lot that I think, you know, to me, really commends the post-mill position. Uh, some of the things there on the sheet that says post-mill. So, you know, they rightly emphasize the unstoppable growth of the kingdom of God. So if you think of some of the parables of Jesus, particularly Matthew, chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. These are two incredibly short parables that are a pair. This one is, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts incredibly small, but it grows, and it can't be stopped. And eventually it becomes a bush so big that even birds are making nests in it. So the post mills are saying, Jesus has come, he's inaugurated the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom is unstoppable. It cannot be stopped. So post mills are incredibly optimistic because they believe that so relentless is the growth of the church, so relentless is the growth of the kingdom that they will usher in the thousand years. The second parable there that's just a single verse is the parable of the yeast in the lump of dough. And it says, you know, Jesus says, you know, a little bit of yeast is put in a lump until that little bit of yeast works itself out through the whole lump of dough. The kingdom of God is like yeast. It can't be stopped. Okay? The kingdom of God also rightly acknowledges that nothing can stop the church. So we think of Matthew 16, verse 18. You know, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, that's another principle of post-millennialism that is reinforced in other passages of Scripture. Even something as basic as the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20, go into all the world, preaching my gospel, making disciples of all men. So the post-mills take incredibly seriously that because Jesus Christ has come a first time and because the kingdom of God is now here, because he has established the church, these things are going to relentlessly advance and increase until he comes again. So they rightly emphasize all of these principles that I think are clearly taught in the rest of the New Testament. So I think the post mills have a lot that commend them as well. However, the big problem I think post mills have is I think the New Testament also indicates there is going to be a relentless advance and increase of evil until the return of Jesus Christ as well. I think the New Testament actually teaches that we 
who are living in this New Testament church age are seeing the growth of two kingdoms. You know, the Apostle Paul, when writing Timothy, you know, he says, in the last days, men are going to be, and he gives this incredibly awful laundry list of all the sins that are going to be taking place. You know, also in Matthew 13, um, the parable of the weeds and the wheat. I think that's Matthew 13, I think it's 36 to 43. But remember, you know, a sower goes out and plants wheat, but then the enemy comes and plants weeds. And the servants of the master say, hey, should we pull up the weeds now? And the master says, no, wait until the harvest, and then pull up both together. The parable of, of the fishnets. Again, the idea that when that final net is cast and that final catch of fish is brought in, there's good fish and there's bad fish. So I think the post mills, although they rightly emphasize the unstoppable growth of the kingdom, the incredible influence of the church, I think they have to completely dismiss and de-emphasize what I think is the clear teaching of the New Testament, that evil is going to increase as well. And that we're not going to be done with evil until Jesus Christ comes again. I think I mentioned this before, but if you look at American history, the majority of the believing church before the American Civil War were post-millennialists, incredibly optimistic, actually believed that the church was going to grow, there was going to be an increase in blessing and increase in kingdom and kingdom principles. Most of America was post-mill. But then the American Civil War came and obviously decimated this country. 620,000 uh, Americans died, more than all other American wars combined. And all of a sudden, the church started to think, hey, maybe we're not going to make this world a better place. <laughs> you know, maybe we're not going to usher in the millennium. And that's actually what started to give rise to dispensational premillennialism in America. So Darby, he was 1800 to 1882. He started to put together a lot of his ideas. Schofield, turn of the century, Ryrie, mid-20th mid century. So it was interesting because it wasn't so much a shift in the understanding of scripture as it was a historical event, which was the American Civil War. And all of a sudden, American Christians are like, yeah, maybe we're not going to be able to usher in the millennium. And that's where there was this massive shift. So again, to me, I think post mills have a lot to commend the, what, 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 what they are reaching for. But again, I think you have to do a, a really significant sidestep and do some explaining that doesn't make a lot of sense of me to kind of dismiss what I think is the clear teaching of the New Testament, that right along with the unstoppable growth of the kingdom is the unstoppable growth of the kingdom of darkness until Jesus Christ comes again. And of course, that's what the pre-mills emphasize, is that evil will not be taken care of until the return of Jesus Christ. So any thoughts about the post-mill position? Obviously, a lot more straightforward, a little simpler to unpack. Okay, if there's nothing more about that, then we'll jump to the third, which is the Amil. And again, for those of you who have studied Latin, I have not studied Latin. The preposition a means no or not. 
So this is actually not a good designation for this position because technically speaking, amill means no millennium and amillennialists absolutely believe in a millennium. But what they believe is that the millennium began when Christ came the first time and will end when Christ comes the second time. So obviously they don't believe it's a literal thousand years because Jesus came you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, so they're not taking that literally. But they do believe that what John is describing in Revelation 21 to 6 is not a unique period of time, but maybe what we would say is a unique look at the present age. A unique look at the present age. And again, I would argue that that actually falls in line with how I read almost all of the book of Revelation. Even though there are numerous passages that describe the return of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, I do not believe it is only in Revelation 19. I believe each cycle of seven in the book of Revelation ends with a description of the return of Christ and the end of this age. But I would argue that most of what Revelation is describing are events that have been taking place since Christ came a first time and will continue to take place until he comes a second time. I don't believe that the majority of the book of Revelation is only describing a very, very small seven-year period just before his return. I don't believe that at all. I believe, in fact, what the book of Revelation is doing is giving us an incredibly different and necessary sort of view of the entire church age. All of the tribulation, all of the persecution, all of the judgments of God I don't think the book of Revelation is describing something that is reserved only for a small window of time just before the second coming, but I believe most of the book of Revelation is describing the entirety of the church age. However, that being said, I do believe each cycle of seven ends with a description of events when Jesus Christ comes again. So I don't believe the best way to read the book of Revelation is to read it as a straight line. I believe that actually makes the book ununderstandable. And again, we mentioned this last time, but just to look at how the first, well, the second cycle of sevens, which is the breaking of the six, the seven seals. Remember in, in Revelation 4 and 5, John is given a vision of God on his throne. Then he's given a vision of the Lamb with God on the throne. And there's a seal with seven seals, and no one can open the seals except the Lamb can. And then beginning in chapter 6, one seal is broken and an event takes place. Another seal is broken and an event takes place. But listen again, end of Revelation chapter 6. I watched as he, the lamb, opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Well, that, unless, unless you're really trying to twist it, that, that pretty much sounds like the end of the world to me. And I think as, 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 as Jesus was inspiring John to write that, I think he wanted John and all of his readers to understand this is the end of the world. I mean, every island and every mountain rooted from its place, all the stars fall 
the moon is, is turned to blood and the sun is darkened and the sky is rolled back like a scroll. I mean, you know, that, that's the end of the world. But we're only in Revelation chapter 6. So if you're trying to read Revelation as a straight line, you've really got to do some fancy understanding to try to make sense of how can you have what seems to be the end of the world in chapter 6 and still have 15 more chapters of Revelation. Well, to me, the simple solution is that is a description of the end. And then when you go to the next series, the seven trumpets, the seven trumpets are describing the entirety of the age. The seven histories in Revelation 12 to 14, the seven bowls, the seven seals that we just talked about, they're cycling. They're cycling. And they're describing the church age from sort of different angles and different perspectives. I think if you read Revelation that way, and you never have before, Revelation will come alive in a way that it never has before. Because for years, I tried reading, reading Revelation as a straight line from chapter 6 to chapter 22. And it just, well, like the, like the pre-mill dispensationalists, it just became so difficult to make sense of. But if you're seeing it as a series of cycles, each ending with the return of Jesus Christ, it makes so much more sense. What is, what is the most significant event on the horizon of human history? The return of Jesus Christ. So wouldn't it be incredibly awesome and beautiful and elegant if the structure of the book of Revelation, if the central piece of the structure of the book of Revelation was the return of Jesus Christ? And that the way the book is actually put together has all of these cycles of seven, each one ending with a description of what happens when Jesus Christ comes again. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be almost like literary genius? Well, I think, yeah, it probably would. And I think that's exactly how the Lord inspired John to write the book of Revelation. But again, one of the, the problems we have as modern folks is we just we tend to be very linear. We tend to be very... It's got to be chronological. It's got to be in order. It's got to be, you know, if the Bible says then, then it has to happen next. And, and, and sometimes that really does us a great disservice with, when reading the scriptures. Because it's clear that that's not always God's priority when he inspired the authors of scripture. You know, look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, chronology is not the main purpose of the Gospels. You know, to this day, people who have poured over Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they cannot create an absolute timeline for the life of Jesus. They can't. Because the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke present the material, as much as it overlaps, it's impossible to make it all fit into a single timeline. Because that's not how God inspired Matthew, Mark, and Luke to report the life of Jesus to us. So again, we've got to understand that as, as, as modern Westerners, we tend to think very linearly, very chronologically, and sometimes we superimpose that on Scripture and we do ourselves a disservice. So to me, as I said last time, the fact that Revelation 19 is an unmistakable description of the return of Jesus Christ does not at all make me have to see the millennium coming after it. No way. Because this is now the fifth description of the return of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation. You know, if Revelation 6 is the end of the world, then Revelation 7 should be what comes after the end of the world, but it's not. If Revelation 11 is the end of the world, then Revelation 12 should be what comes after the end of the world, but it's not. If Revelation 16 is the end of the bull, uh, the end of the bulls, the end of the world, then Revelation 7. So in other words, 
If you read Revelation this way, you're, you're expecting, okay, at the end of each cycle of seven, we've reached this once again, but now we're going to go back. So we've reached this point in Revelation 19, but now in Revelation 20, we're going to go back. I have no problem doing that. I have no problem doing that. And in fact, I think that's the best way to read the book of Revelation. I think if you're trying to say, because of the order of chapters 19 and 20, that the return of Jesus Christ has to come before, because it comes before in the order of the book, you're making a huge mistake. And on that, Amills and Postmills agree. Because Postmills do not believe the millennium comes before the second coming. Remember, they believe that the church ushers in the millennium. So on that, Amills and Postmills agree that you don't have to take it as a literal sequence. Okay? So in terms of simplicity, this is the simplest. In terms of challenges, it definitely has some challenges. Because now what you have to say is that what John is describing in Revelation 21 to 6 really is a description of the church age and not a description of something that's better than now. And that's what, you know, the Amills have a burden of trying to prove. The pre-mills and the post-mills can absolutely read Revelation 21 to 6 and say, yeah, of course that's better than right now. Whether the church ushers it in or whether it's on the other side of the second coming, they absolutely say Revelation 21 to 6 is a silver age. It's something better than right now, but not eternity. So the burden that Amills have is to say, well, can we legitimately make sense of Revelation 21 to 6 as describing the events of the church age without just really kind of superimposing our understanding on it. And of course, there again, we all have to be very careful that we don't do that when we read Scripture. We all have the tendency of reading into passages of Scripture what we already believe. There's just, there's no way to avoid that. I mean, none of us are blank slates. We all have ideas, perceptions, convictions, beliefs, and we read those into each passage of Scripture. What we want to try to do is be as aware of those as we possibly can be to hopefully have the Spirit of God help us see where we're just kind of reading into a text rather than just letting the text speak to us. So let's take some time now and unpack Revelation 21 to 6 and see if it is possible to say, hey, the Amels actually are not wrong in saying that those verses are describing the entirety of the church age. A comment or a question? Yeah, please. Richard, go ahead. Sorry, just uh, un yes, unmuting. Um, just one uh, completely unrelated comment uh, about the order of books in the Bible. I, judges, at least the end of Judges, made a lot more sense once I realized the last two chapters uh, happened very early on in the book of Judges. Um, trying to fit those two books in at the end, uh, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, so that just, that's just an example of what you're, you know, the, the point that you're making. Um, but the, the, my, my fundamental question here, maybe you're going to address it on another day, is so do... Uh, are millennials? I'm going to say a, a millennials would be the English way. <laughs> be, be American here. <laughs> uh, uh, are millennials, right? Is that how you say it? 
I, I would say all millennials, but okay. I, I wouldn't all be offended if you say a millennials. No, 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 all millennials. Uh, um, so, did they believe in a literal seven-year tribulation period? And the reason I ask that is because I'm asking really whether um, they would expect to know when the tribulation starts and therefore be able to quote-unquote predict when it ends? No and yes. That's perfect would, answer. Yes. So, <laughs> all millennialists would not take the seven-year tribulation as a literal seven years. So that's the no. They would argue that the great tribulation or the tribulation described in the book of Revelation and other passages actually was inaugurated when Christ came. Right, I remember now you saying that. So, yes. so yes, when it they comes... Do, they do believe they know the beginning of it because they believe the beginning yeah. of it is when Christ came. So how do they handle in the book of Revelations and, and Daniel where it seems to set out a period of time? That's <laughs> how I should have phrased it more specifically. No, and, and you know, I, I, part of what Richard is asking is Daniel 9, 24 to 27, which is, is part of a vision and an answer to prayer that Daniel receives. And this is where Daniel is actually told about 70 sevens. That's, that's the best way to put it. Daniel is told about 70 sevens. Now, because seven in Hebrew can also mean a week, sometimes it's referred to as the 70 weeks. But literally, if you're taking it just in terms of numbers, Daniel is told about 70 sevens. And then there is a breakdown in these verses of 62 sevens, and then I think it's seven sevens, and then it's one seven, and then that's split in half, I think is how they get to the 70. And so, without a doubt, what Revelation is doing with seven and with times, time, and half a time, and 42 months, and 1260 days, is absolutely directly connected to Daniel 9. There's no doubt in my mind about that. How it's connected, that's beyond me. My, my revelation professor at seminary was the youngest man ever to receive a PhD in mathematics from Harvard University. He was 23 years old when he got a, a PhD in mathematics from Harvard. Unbelievably humble guy. He, in Revelation class, explained this to me. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> Richard, you probably would have followed him. I didn't. I didn't. I remember another Old Testament guy, my prophet's professor, who's gone home to be with the Lord. He said possibly these four verses of the Hebrew Bible are the hardest to understand in all of the Hebrew Bible, partly because the Hebrew there is incredibly ambiguous in a couple of places. I mean, I remember him saying there's, there's one phrase in there where we're not even sure if the prophecy is talking about the Antichrist who's coming or the Messiah who's coming. That's how unclear the reference is. So what I would say, Richard, is I know that there is a connection between this and the, the periods of time that are mentioned in the book of Revelation because the periods of time that are mentioned in the book of Revelation is 1,260 days. Well, you know, the Jewish calendar is 12 
30-day months. So 1,260 days is three and a half years. And this last seven of Daniel is split in half. Another designation in the book of Revelation is 42 months. Well, again, 12 months in a year, that's three and a half years. Again, that idea of that last three and a half of Daniel. Another designation in the book of Revelation is time, times, and half a time. Well, time, you could say that's a year. Times, you could say that's two years. And half a time, that's three and a half years. So all I would say, Richard, is I know there is a connection. But how it works out, that I'm not as clear on. But I think basically, and this is super, super simple, and it's begging so many questions from Daniel chapter 9. I think what I... Revelation is doing is saying that that last piece of the timeline that Daniel is given is all of this. That's the way I would understand it. Okay, that, I think that, that's what I was really trying to get a, a sense of is whether um, whether amillennials uh, take those kinds of numbers in a literal sense or whether what you just described, whether they are, I wouldn't say figurative, but I'm not quite sure what word you would use. I but would use symbolic. Symbolic, okay, yes, yeah. yeah. And, and that's really what I was, what I've been, because none of them, these three sort of main options are easy to, um, <laughs> you know. They um, all have significant challenges. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you know what, even as we're talking, Richard, I think I got these reversed. I think as Daniel unpacks the 77s, I think he mentions seven first, then there's 62, then there's the last one, and this last one is split in half. So put this above that. But you guys can read Daniel 9, 24 to 27. But yeah, what I would say, Richard, is amillennials are taking the numbers from the book of Revelation symbolically. And again, the broader category of, of literature that the book of Revelation falls under is a category that's known as apocalyptic literature, which is actually from the Greek word, which means to reveal. And there are significant portions of Old Testament prophecy that is apocalyptic. Daniel chapter 7 and following, almost all of that is apocalyptic prophecy. The end of Ezekiel. Uh, Zechariah. In fact, if you read the book of Revelation, Revelation is constantly referencing and reworking Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. I mean, it's incredible what a connection there is there. But one thing that sometimes is hard for us to understand that by very nature, apocalyptic literature is symbolic. It's not literal. And, and God uses so many different literary genres in his word. He uses narrative. He uses poetry. He uses law. He uses proverb. He uses song. And so to think that he was not free to choose another genre of literature that's very foreign to us, and apocalyptic literature is very foreign to us, but one of the things that we know from studying apocalyptic literature is that it is intended to be symbolic. You know, on my bookshelf at home, I have a, 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 a book that's about 1,200 pages, and it's volume one of two of apocalyptic literature that was written around 200 years before and after the writing of the New Testament. 
apocalyptic literature was as common as fairy tale at that time. And, and, and it was recognized. Like if I said to you, I'm going to read you a book, and the first line of the book is, once upon a time. Immediately, what are you thinking that book is? It's a fairy tale. Exactly. Apocalyptic literature was everywhere in the time before, during, and after the coming of Christ. So Revelation, I think, actually would have been better read by the first century church than by us because they would not have been trying to either make it a straight-line chronology or take everything literally. So, But no, I really appreciate you bringing that up, Richard, because there's no doubt that there is a clear connection between the 77s of Daniel 9 and the time frames that are given us in the book of Revelation. And I know it's super, super simple to say it, but I think what I understand it to be is that we are living in that last half of the last seven of Daniel's prophecy. Now, when I wrote that on a paper for this professor that has the PhD in mathematics, he made a comment, something like, well, it's not quite that straightforward. And I said, well, I believe it, because when you lectured on it, I didn't understand it. That's the most I can understand. <laughs> so, but he was super humble and super gracious. So, but no. And, and again, Anamil would have no problem saying that in part of the book, this is described as 42 months. In part of the book, this is described as 1,260 days. And in part of the book, this is described as 1,000 years. Because there's nothing that says you know, every designation of time has to be identical if it's describing the same time frame. So you know, I believe that most of what the book of Revelation is describing is the suffering that the church has endured from the get-go. I mean, if you think of Matthew 24, he was speaking to the first generation and saying, look, you know, you guys are going to experience horrific, horrific calamity and persecution. And that's been going on ever since. And I believe it actually really does a, a disservice to all the ways that the church has suffered for 2,000 years to say that the suffering of the book of Re Revelation is all in the future. You know, historically, the book of Revelation has been one of the greatest sources of comfort for the persecuted church. You know, historically, when the church has faced intense persecution in certain geographical regions at certain periods of time, the book of Revelation has been an incredible source of comfort. Why? Because the book of Revelation describes persecution just in vicious wicked, ferocious terms. But in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, he wins. So when the church, historically, not just seven years, literally some point in the future, but historically, when the church has faced just intense persecution, the book of Revelation has brought great comfort. And they're not reading it saying, oh, you know, this is talking about something down the road. No, they're like, this is what's happening right now. And Jesus wins. I mean, the main, the main theme of the book of Revelation, you know, if you read the book of Revelation, you know, the main theme that should be constantly rolling through your head is just that Jesus wins. That's it. Jesus wins. There's a, a nasty dragon. There's nasty beasts. There's plagues of locusts that, you know, sting you with scorpion stings and awful creatures and incredible, you know, horsemen of calamity and you know, there's, there's a lot of significant, serious, awful things that happen in this life, in this world, and Jesus wins. That's, that's, the, that's the theme of the book of Revelation, is Jesus wins. And so, again, I think 
to take the numbers of Revelation symbolically is actually really giving full credit to the genre of literature that God chose when he inspired John to write the book of Revelation. When he inspired Ezekiel with the visions that he got. When he inspired Zechariah and Daniel with the visions that they received. I mean, if you read Zechariah, the first eight night visions that he has at the beginning of the book, you're like, I think I'm reading the book of Revelation. Because it, it, you just see that incredible similarity. And of course, John is constantly picking from those chapters of Zechariah. So, well anyways, it's almost 8.30 and I think at this point it's probably best not to launch into how do the Amils legitimately, or can they, can they legitimately say that these six verses are really describing the entirety of the church age? Or is that, you know, for us, an insurmountable problem? You know, we've looked at what I believe are some of the insurmountable problems for the pre-mills and the post-mills. And obviously, this is where I hang my hat. But I don't say that the odd mills have everything sorted out. They don't. You know, Isaiah 65 is tough. I mean, Isaiah 65 is tough. Because you think it's talking about eternity, but then it's talking about the potential of death. And you're like, how does that make sense? You know, Zechariah 14 is tough. Because you think you're talking about eternity, but then there's the threat of curse for those who don't keep the Feast of Tabernacles, is what Zechariah says. So those are Old Testament prophets that seem, maybe the most straightforward way of reading them is that there is going to be a Silver Age. So that's one of the more challenging aspects of adhering to an Amil position, is trying to make sense of Isaiah 65, Zechariah 14. What do you do with Ezekiel's temple? Just, you know, just the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, what do you do with that? Well, the pre-mills say that you know, that temple is going to be built in the millennium. They also believe that animal sacrifice is going to be restored, but not obviously for propitiation of sins, but as memorial sacrifice. That's what they do with Ezekiel's temple. That doesn't make any sense to me. I don't, I'm never going to kill another animal, whether it's a memorial sacrifice or what. That, that doesn't make any sense. But yeah, but I'm an animal. What do I do with Ezekiel's temple? So those are some really tough issues. And then again, can you legitimately justify that the binding of Satan that's described in verses 1 to 3 and the reigning of this group of individuals, whoever they are, with Christ, is that, is that really John describing what's taking place right now in the church age? I mean, I think it is, but not without its challenges. Certainly not without its challenges. So, but we're out of time. So we'll have to pick that up. I apologize. We're not going to meet again for three weeks. Um, because next week would be a week that we could meet. But Friday is the Good Friday service. And we didn't want to double up. We want to make sure everyone makes coming to Good Friday a priority. Then the following week is the men's ministry. And I don't want to step on the men's toes, because you know how sensitive the men are. You know, they get all, you know. So we don't, we don't want to step on their toes. Not singling anyone out here, Carl and Andrew. And Scott and Tim in abstentia. No, seriously, we, we didn't want to double up. And we never wanted to double up because we don't want to ask people to have to choose between Wednesday or Thursday. So the next time that we are meeting, unfortunately, is April 19th, three weeks from tonight. But don't forget a single thing that was mentioned tonight. Make sure you hold that in the steel trap that is each of your minds 
until we meet again. Because, you know, realistically, when we meet on the 19th, we could just review all of that, and at 8.30, we'd be right here again. <laughs> but I will try hard not to do that. But, you know, if, if you have an interest in this, you can certainly look up some stuff, do some reading on your own. And, you know, no matter what, what theme you're exploring, if you're diving into Scripture, it's fruitful. You know, if you're doing a deeper dive into Scripture, even something as, as relatively briefly mentioned as the millennium, you know, we don't want to spend the rest of our lives talking about the millennium, but if you're doing a deeper dive into Scripture, it's always fruitful. It's always beneficial. And let's really try to appreciate just how much the believing church has struggled to try to make sense of these verses, to try to come to a God-honoring interpretation of what John saw and what John was describing. Um, because that's part of the joy of, of reading the Word and studying the Word. And in April to 19th, if the Lord doesn't come again, we'll gather here and we'll try to see if the Amils can legitimately say 21 to 6 is a description of the church age. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And we thank you so much just for the blessing of being together as the body of Christ, as sisters and brothers, as your sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord God, for loving us. Thank you, Lord God, for wanting to speak to us. Thank you, Lord God, for wanting to reveal yourself to us. And Father, we just pray for all of our sisters and brothers, regardless of where they stand on the millennium. And we pray, Lord God, that we would always be doing everything we can to be promoting unity in the body of Christ. Not argument, not disagreement, not the building of walls and separation because Jesus you died to make us one and anything that ultimately divides us is not your heart for us so there can be disagreement there can be difference of opinion without that leading to animosity and broken relationship and throwing barbs and sinful comments towards and at each other and so Lord help us never to walk in that we know Lord God that part of the calling of Living Word community is to be a place of diversity, to be a place where brothers and sisters who are not identical genuinely come together as a, a, a unified expression of the body of Christ to worship you. Yes. We are not cookie cutter in terms of ethnicity, in terms of skin color, in terms of language, in terms of education, in terms of finance, in terms of age. Lord, it's, it's hard to find any commonality here other than the most important, which is we all love Jesus Christ. And so, Living Word, I know that you have particularly called us not to build walls in the kingdom, but to build bridges. That was so much of Pastor Buck's heart. So much of Pastor Buck's heart was to see the body of Christ brought closer to each other by drawing closer to you. So as we continue to consider a very controversial topic and what can potentially be a very divisive topic, we pray that it would never become that for us. So we thank you for that. And finally, Father, for those who are here in person, we just pray for safety as we travel home and bless everyone's rest of the night. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for being on Zoom. Lord willing, we will see you all April 19th. April 19th.